Welcome to the Pair Program from Hatchpad, the podcast that gives you a front row seat to candid conversations with tech leaders from the startup world. I'm your host, Tim Winkler, the creator of Hatchpad. And I'm your other host, Mike Ruin. Join us each episode as we bring together two guests to dissect topics at the intersection of technology, startups, and career growth. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of The Pair Program. I'm your host, Tim Winkler, joined by my co-host, Mike Gruen. Mike, uh, given our episode today is centered around AI, I was inspired to think back through some of the greatest AI references in Hollywood over the years. And some of the, some of the names that kind of popped up, some of the characters that popped up were Agent Smith from The Matrix, um, Skynet, Terminators from The Terminator, Data from Star Trek, and then Wally. Mm-hmm. So my question for you to kick things off, if we're going to set up a battle royale between these four AI characters, who would be the who'd be the last bot standing in the ring? I mean, Skynet, they time travel. I think that trumps. <laughs> I think that trumps everything. Sure data time traveled once or twice, though, no? Yeah, yeah but, uh, but through like wormhole like that, I feel like that was more discovery, not uh, invention. Um, but I would like to point out, and I think I mentioned uh, that you left off that list Whopper, the original uh, Skynet from uh, War Games. Mm. So, okay. good. <laughs> it's good, good, start good uh, World War. Eh, it's not really a correction. <laughs> not a correction. I'm not correcting you. I'm just adding to the list. But yeah. Just adding. Yeah, yeah. What about you? What, what, um, which one do you think wins? Well, I, I wanted to kind of keep on on theme, so I just plugged it into ChatGPT, <laughs> and the the answer was in a in a straight up battle royale. My money might be on Skynet Terminators due to their combat focus and relentlessness. Agent Smith could be a close second if he manages to take over the other bots or manipulates the environment. Data and Wally are strong contenders, but they might be limited by their programming and lack of aggressive intent. But then again, Wally might just charm everyone into laying down their arms. Who knows? Interesting. <laughs> that's a good answer. That's, well, a, good that's, answer. that's a much better answer. Uh, well, more, well, much more thought out, clearly. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I kind of like the Wally just charming folks. Charming okay, like, let's just let me win this one. Nice. Um, good stuff. All right. Well, uh, let's let's give our listeners a, a preview of today's episode. So today we are going to dive into uh, a discussion around AI engineering and the debate on should AI engineers kind of be jacks of all trades or masters of one. Uh, and we'll tackle everything from you know career paths to ethical kind of quandaries and and a, and a few other things. But uh, we've got two very qualified guests joining us: uh, Andrew Gamino Chong and Maggie Engler. Andrew is the CTO and co-founder of Trustable, uh, an AI governance startup, has over seven years of experience as a AI ML engineer and architect at Fiscal Note prior to starting Trustable, and he's a very passionate about the intersection of AI and policy. Maggie is an experienced AI engineer currently at Inflection AI, an AI studio based in San Francisco, creating a personal AI for everyone. And prior to Inflection, Maggie spent two years at Twitter X, uh, building models to detect policy violations and has taught data science courses at UT Austin and Penn State Law. So before we dive into the discussion, first off, thank you all for joining us today. Um, but we will kick things off with a uh, fun segment uh, called Pair Me Up. This is where we pretty much go around the room and give a complimentary pairing. There we go. Teed up. Um, Mike, you always kick us off. What do you got for us today? Keeping it nice and simple, going back to the basics with food, hash browns and sour cream. 
Um, I was recently reminded that there was a, a restaurant in, um, Beth- well, Rockville, South Rockville, North Bethesda, but really South Rockville, uh, called Hamburger Hamlet uh, for a long, long time when I first moved down here that had that was it was called those potatoes or something like that. And it was uh, hash browns and sour cream and it was went excellent with the burger or whatever we're having for dinner. So. Yeah, I wasn't seeing that coming. The sour cream threw me off a little bit. The hash browns, so like ketchup, maybe uh, sour <laughs> that, cream. And I'm not even a huge sour cream guy, but sour cream and hash browns, it was, it's a, it's a nice pair. Okay, I'll, I'll have to take your word on that. Um, <laughs> I love sour cream too, but I've never tried it on hash browns. But we'll give it a shot. I'm talking uh, like I'll the potato. Like, I'm not talking like the round potato ones. I'm talking like the like where it's the the hash browns are like the breakfast like the skinny shredded potato yeah yeah i got you yeah i'm following you okay i'm just thinking of a mcdonald's hash brown for some reason that's what's coming to my mind (laughs) i see Uh, i'm getting hungry now (laughs) good thing it's friday Uh, afternoon (laughs) yeah I'll, I'll i'll jump in so um my my parent's gonna be fitness and fellowship so earlier this year i joined this kind of workout community in my town it's called f3 it stands for faith, fitness, and fellowship. Um, it turns out there's actually hundreds of these kind of s- small outposts across the country and actually some, some global locations as well. But essentially what it is, it's small workout groups of anywhere from like three to 20 guys that meet up a few days each week, usually pretty early in the morning for like a 45-minute hit workout. And for me, it's kind of been a valuable way to combine community and exercise. And so like the fellowship piece of it, makes the fitness part in my opinion more enjoyable and i guess more sustainable you kind of get a guilt trip if you don't show up or people you know kind of rag on you if you're if you keep missing a couple of days consecutively so um another perk of it for me has been so my family we live in northern virginia but we we have a, a place in chattanooga tennessee that we try to come to you know a couple of months out of the year and especially where I'm recording from today. Um, but uh, there's little F3 post here as well. And so it's a way to just kind of quickly plug right into the, the local network here, kind of get a workout in, um, but also kind of meet some, some people as well. So that's, uh, that's my parents, um, fitness and, and fellowship. Um, Definitely agree. I went to the gym the most when I had a coworker, he and I, it was like this, like, he was like, all right, tomorrow at 6am. I was like, I, I have no choice. Like you've already, we've set the challenge. So yeah. I'll yeah. See you there six. Yeah. I mean, Jim's capitalized on that community style, like orange theory is another one. Like people want to get those splat points. They want to, you know, post it through their, the little, the little network, the app and everything. So it's, it's, it's pretty, it's pretty genius. Um, but um, definitely something that kind of keeps me motivated and, and keeps me coming back. Um, cool. So let's pass it along to our guest, um, Maggie, I, I'll start with you if you want to give us a quick intro and tell us your pairing. Sure. Um, well, <laughs> I'm Maggie. I'm in Austin, uh, Texas, and y'all already introduced uh, me a little bit, but my pairing, I'm also kind of moving into this fall mode, even though um, it really has only just started cooling off uh, down in Texas. Um, and so I was thinking about also uh, food related. Um, my pairing is coffee and pie because I love, uh, like Thanksgiving, obviously, and, all, and having food and family. But what I really love is like leftover pie and then having that for breakfast, uh, nice. with like black coffee. To me, that is like the perfect breakfast. That's oh, awesome. 
Now I'm salivating because pie is one of my favorite desserts of all time. <laughs> Dessert and for breakfast is great. Uh, this yeah. morning, this morning sure. I had my leftover bread pudding for breakfast. So, <laughs> so do you, your your coffee? You're just going straight black coffee, or do you do like a flavor I'm just cream, going cream or two? Coffee. Nice. Yeah, okay. and I actually I don't really do like iced coffee, which is kind of unusual, uh, especially when it's hot out. But I'm pretty much just, uh, yeah, old fashioned that way. Nice. <laughs> I love it. Coffee and pie getting geared up for Thanksgiving. Um, awesome. Well, thanks again for joining us. Uh, Andrew, how about yourself? Quick, uh, intro and your pairing. Yeah. Uh, my name is Andrew. Really excited to be here. Um, I'm actually calling in from DC. So, uh, close, uh, to, I know for some of the other places you guys were talking about for me, I'm actually going to go with like a, a really great, uh, competitive strategy board game and a craft cocktail. There's a lot of places that I love to go to in college that had like, you know, board games and drinks. And then during the peak pandemic, my wife and I, I think bought every good competitive two player board game out there. And then some of those pandemic nights where you couldn't go out and do anything, we'd make cocktails and play those for hours on end. So I think oh, something fun. about the pairing of those that just work really well, getting vibes on both sides. So. Nice. That sounds awesome. You have a favorite? Have you have a debate. favorite? Cocktail uh, or board game? Board game. Oh. <laughs> for two-player board game, there's one um, Seven Wonders Duel. It's a dedicated version for two players. Uh, my wife and I got competitive in that real fast. That was amazing. Nice. My wife and I was uh, Starfarers of Catan. Is our uh, mm -hmm. was our go-to for two-player. It's a uh, yeah, love yeah. that. Yeah. Yeah, we were having a debate uh, at Hatch uh, not long ago about the the goat board game out there, and um, Clue came up quite a bit. Clue was was one of a, a group favorite, but it's not really a two person thing. But Tom was definitely <laughs> also top of list. All right, good stuff. Uh, well, again, thanks for joining us, Andrew, and uh, we'll we'll transition into uh, the heart of the the topic here. So, uh, as I mentioned, we're going to be you know talking about you know depth versus breadth as it relates to AI engineering, um, and we want to kind of tackle this from a few different perspectives. Um, Andrew, you know, why don't you kind of lead us off here? You know, you were a, a double major uh, in computer science and government. Sounds like it played a part in your career path as an engineer. So, you know, what are your kind of thoughts on the topic of you know, specialization versus generalization? Yeah, happy to dive into that. So, as you mentioned in, in undergrad, I double majored in both uh, political science and computer science. Honestly, at the time, I was unsure whether I wanted to become a lawyer doing stuff in the tech space or if I want to go into the tech space and do stuff related to the law. I ended up choosing more of the latter because I always had these dual interests. Um, really partly informed by, you know, the kinds of things I did growing up. You know, I was the biggest fan of the West Wing, really shaped my whole view and desired to come to DC for college. Um, but I also loved watching you know, every sci-fi show out there. You know, I, I watched all of Star Trek and watched Data and all these cool ideas about AI um, and the impacts that those could have on society. And so what I was always thinking about is actually how could we apply these awesome, powerful ideas in AI to this space? You know, I always saw a lot of similarities in the kinds of logical things that actually are embedded in laws, you know, these policies, these ideas, there's logical principles, there's interpretations, and how that could actually be perhaps assisted by AI. I think like a lot of people, I always tried making my own like, hey, could you create an AI that could actually interpret laws, and make recommendations based on that? I think now I've got a much better sense of the ethical or safety challenges around that. Um, but my advice sometimes is actually to, when I talk to former students, you know, pick two things, pick one thing that will give you some technical skills 
pick another that really piques your intellectual curiosity. And you can find a really, really great career path working at the intersection of those two, because you can basically be always understanding the latest technologies and ideas and applying it to the problems in your other space. And you can do that in both directions. And that's where I think we see innovation happen the most. And you're taking ideas and solutions that have been developed in one space and then applying them to another. And I think my career has been really successful doing that. Um, that's definitely something I, I recommend to everyone else. Yeah, that's really sound feedback um, and advice. You know, and this is probably a good jump off to also like you know explain a little bit more about Trustable because obviously it sounds like this played a big part in you building this this business and and what you all the problems that you all are solving. Yeah. So right before I started Trustable, I was working for a company that basically was using AI to understand the policy landscape. We would scrape every piece of proposed regulation and legislation initially in the U.S. and then globally use AI to try and identify what was relevant, you know, which legislation was more likely to pass or not based on individual voting preferences, you know, which things were more likely to be significant to different industries. One of the biggest trends we saw was on regulation for AI itself. So I remember, for example, reading the first draft of the EU's AI Act almost two and a half years ago when it was proposed and immediately starting to think through how would this impact actually my life, right? I was on a day-to-day -day basis proposing new ideas for AI, I was never having to go through our legal team, though, to discuss them, to understand the compliance requirements or the legal context around that. So I was literally starting to think through, actually, how could I make sure that I don't have to spend all my time dealing with just compliance and legal teams? Like, could I give them all the information they need up front to help do the kinds of risk assessments that these laws require? That was then the origin of Trustable. You know, our, our goal is to make compliance with all of these AI-focused regulations as easy as possible where that's understanding even what risk category use case of AI falls into for the AI Act, conducting some of the workflows to do like risk or impact assessments on individual risks, and actually helping to just um, helping organizations adopt ethical principles and helping them actually document all the ways in which they are being ethical with AI in a provable way so they can kind of build trust with their stakeholders. So this is actually, and we ourselves are using AI as part of this, right? We've actually done a lot of research now on AI incidents we also have an, a large language model system that can help uh, kind of teach some of our customers what the different requirements are and help them interpret and even document things in a smarter way. We won't use generative AI to write your documentation, but we will actually evaluate how good your documentation is with AI. Yeah, and it's a, another topic that we'll we'll get a little bit deeper into uh, later on in the conversation because you had a you know some interesting perspective on like the the doomers and the utopist and finding a, a middle ground there as well when it comes to AI. But um, let's uh, let's get Maggie's perspective on this as well. So um, Maggie, what, I guess uh, your your initial thoughts when you when you think about AI when it comes to you know engineering as a specialist or or generalist. Yeah, I think that's. Um... I think there's room for both. <laughs> um, and um, just thinking back, I, I, it's super interesting, Andrew, that you are CS in government. Um, I was, I think, pretty much throughout school, pretty much a specialist. Uh, I actually don't have a CS degree. Uh, I was, uh, did a bachelor's and master's in electrical engineering. Uh, and I was focused on statistical signal processing. So kind of very like applied math um, focused not really at that point with, with too many um, kind of practical uh, applications. Um, but the first uh, role that I had in industry, I was working on a um, cybersecurity platform. So doing uh, malware detection um, with machine learning. And I think that um, from that point on, I was kind of like, oh, well, first of all, um, just from a purely academic 
standpoint, like the data science and machine learning world uh, aligns really well with my skill set. Um, but then also working in that um, field, uh, kind of by accident, really, uh, I found that cybersecurity was super interesting to me uh, on a personal level. I became really interested in how uh, responsive different machine learning systems are to uh, different types of attacks and how um, there's kind of this um, cat and mouse game uh, where as soon as you sort of harden a model to <laughs> some type of attack, like you then start to see um, novel things come up. And um, for me, like that sort of adversarial nature um, meant that it was it, it was always kind of fresh and, and felt um, um, like that I was uh, that I was always learning. And so um, ultimately, I think we kind of ended up at the same place, even though I was certainly not as broad as Andrew <laughs> when I was in school. Um, in that I kind of uh, selected um, my career opportunities towards uh, first sort of explicitly cybersecurity and information security. And then um, after that, much more towards uh, trust and safety more generally. Um, so I worked at, um, you already mentioned, I was, I was at Twitter and uh, now X uh, for um, over two years working on their, in their health engineering organization on policy enforcement. And in my current role, I took a lot of that um, background to an AI startup uh, where a big part of my job is just trying to understand uh, and improve uh, the safety of um, our large language model product. And so understanding uh, what are the risks um, associated with um, <laughs> what generations the model produces in these different conversations, uh, how can we measure that and how can we kind of prevent um, uh, unsafe generations from happening. Um, so I've also kind of <laughs> somewhat narrowly focused in on, on a, a certain problem area, even though obviously data science and machine learning is, is super broad. You can do almost anything with that. Um, and so I really like um, uh, this proposition around like if you can <laughs> find um, uh, a broad enough skill set, but also narrow in on like a particular area where you're interested in applying it, um, that seems like a, a recipe for success. Yeah, it's really fascinating. Um, Mike, I'm kind of curious on your input on this too. Just kind of, you know, I mean, it's a very similar, a lot of, yeah, it was just, it's funny. Cause, uh, as, um, as you were talking, I was thinking about my own story, my own journey on like how to, I went into natural language processing and then I was on a cybersecurity product where we're using inferential statistics to try and find bad actors and stuff like that. And I, and like the whole idea of, for me, I went to school for computer science. I minored in English basically poetry. There's not a good intersection there. Um, <laughs> but um, I do agree with the idea of like, if you can find certain areas that like you're really passionate about, like when I was doing the, the stuff with the natural language processing, and we were, um, it was, it was really for intelligence communities to find like bad actors, uh, looking at different things. Um, passionate about that and being able to apply my sort of software engineering expertise to that. So I agree with that sort of like, if you can find that, those niches that really interest you. And I don't know that you need, I think it can change over time. I'm, I've been working for a long time and I've moved from thing to thing to thing. Um, I think that's an important part of a career is find, you know, being able to find the next thing that you want to work on or the next area. Um, once you start maybe losing interest in a particular area, I know other people that are like stuck in the same thing for years and years and years, and they've never lost interest in it. And I can see that also happening, but it's also I think having a broad skill set that you can apply to very specific problems is a, it's a good way to go. 
are, are there any verticals that you would say, like, you know, being a specialist is, is preferred, right? Um, uh, healthcare, anything, anything that comes to mind uh, that you all would say that you've heard from colleagues or friends that have been truly very dialed in and it's proven beneficial for them? I know um, a couple people from some grad school times who have uh, kind of combined a lot of background in the medical space with a deep understanding of computer science. And there's so many amazing applications, actually, of um, even taking computer science concepts that are now almost a decade old, and they're still actually quite novel when applied to computational biology problems, um, you know, like sequencing of different things and now looking at applying some stuff around like DNA sequencing and the algorithms developed to that to sequencing actually stuff in tumors themselves. And, you know, what you realize is that there's actually so much good work to be done there that isn't, it's not viewed as cutting edge anymore, right? Even the idea, I, I knew someone who is taking the concept of word embeddings, which now feel ancient in terms of NLP technologies, then we're applying that actually to like sequences of DNA that they were collecting, right? Because if you're talking about the context of things that are next to things and how that can actually represent stuff, they're actually able to learn a lot and improve their own um, topic model kinds of algorithms in the computational biospace using what is practically ancient technology now in the NLP space. And I found that be like a fascinating application. Hmm. How about you, Maggie? Anything that comes to mind? Um, that is fascinating. I think that um, I have seen uh, certainly sort of very specialist uh, individuals usually like PhDs, uh, be extremely successful at sort of the cutting edge of AI mm -hmm. research. Um, I think that um, uh, I, I worked with in the past people who have done, for example, like <laughs> large language models, re model research for, you know, at this point, much, much longer, years longer than uh, most other people in the field. Um, and I think that does give you an edge, but it, it does to me, seem to be like a very small slice of the sort of total opportunity. So I, I think in health is a great example of a vertical where um, all of this like specific domain knowledge is really, really helpful. And you can use, uh, like Andrew said, um, uh, just the, the application of even a technique like word embeddings um, could produce novel knowledge. Um, so I think there's I think there's a mix. And I think uh, that was <laughs> what I was uh, trying to get at at the beginning uh, is that. I think that in a lot of cases, there's room for specialists and um, folks who are, are, have that more broad um, knowledge, but in particularly uh, sort of the cross-pollination of ideas um, seems to hold a lot of value. Yeah, and I think with the, you know, the uh, generative AI models, like the, some of these foundational models that have come out uh, over the last year, um, these are really kind of spicing things up, I think, and, and adding adding to this debate because and, and Maggie maybe we were talking about this on our dis initial discovery call about you know the power of of these tools and how they can be applied to not just a computer science you know graduate but like folks in marketing or folks in finance or something there where they can now consider themselves going down this path of of an AI opportunity that maybe wasn't quite as present before so I'd love to just kind of pull on that thread a little bit and, and, and maybe, you know, starting with like how, how these have impacted your all's work or, you know, how, how do these kinds of models like limit or enhance career prospects, especially for those folks that are coming out of school and, um, you know, exploring that next opportunity for themselves. I'll let you go ahead, Maggie, first, since I went first on maybe some of the last <laughs> few questions. Uh, yeah, I, I think it's, as we talked about, I think it's a, 
really interesting time <laughs> right now because of uh, these foundation models. Um, one of the things that strikes me, so in my own workflow, I've started integrating coding assistance, things like that, um, that don't necessarily produce anything for me that like I, I wouldn't have known how to do, but can uh, make things more efficient um, and make it faster to do things like documentation. Um, but for me, yeah, the, the big question, right, is uh, how will this change kind of future like work opportunities and even and fields? I do think that the argument that I, I think I'd made at that point in time is um, that it will not necessarily um, replace entirely a lot of a lot of the professions that people are kind of worried <laughs> about um, losing, um, but that it is always going to be sort of an advantage, like any tool right, uh, to be able to use generative AI well and um, understand its limitations and understand its capabilities. Um, actually, my, my um, uh, colleague from Twitter, uh, Numa Damani, and I um, have a book coming out uh, actually in a couple of weeks uh, with Manning on Introduction to Generative AI. Um, but <laughs> uh, shameless plug. Um, but in that, we're, we talk a lot about um, sort of the things that people uh, do use it for already. And then like things that they really shouldn't be using it for. There was a super famous example of uh, a lawyer who um, submitted a legal brief uh, with chat G written with chat GPT and didn't really, uh, or didn't even fact check it um, before <laughs> no. it to the judge. And so it caused this whole kind of delay in the case. And I think he was penalized professionally in various ways um, because ultimately uh, people are still going to have <laughs> sort of the responsibility to ensure quality of their outputs, but if you're able to uh, produce uh, writing that is, um, you know, at, to the quality that it needs to be, and um, you're able to do that much faster, much cheaper, then that's always going to be an edge. Mm. I mean, I think just jumping in a little bit on that, like the, I think back to the 90s when the web was starting, um, I, and I think mm -hmm. what we've seen is really an enablement of certain career opportunities that didn't exist. So like when I first started, you had some artists and some graphic designers on staff that were sort of helping to do things. But now you like I've worked with people who are just straight up graphic designer artists who can now do a whole web application front end, the whole, you know, and most of the, the logic to it. And I think that like, right, we the software engineers, computer science, we, we build these tools that then enable others to use their special talents there, whether they're artists or whatever, to be able to sort of take it to the next, next level. And I think that that's what AI is going to be able to do is sort of make some of these like have impact to other careers that we can't even think of um, and enable them to be more efficient in their jobs. You know, one thing that I always find funny is that we call it prompt engineering, but so oftentimes it feels more like prompt art, right? It's more like... <laughs> There are some funky things that can happen depending on what prompts you put in there. I know Maggie, mm -hmm. this is like the big problem that you're trying to actually solve for. But I think it, it is amazing because I've seen some very incredibly intelligent people who aren't, don't have a technical background do some really amazing things with these algorithms and these generative AI systems. I do think, though, the limitations of them aren't well understood. You know, some people, it's like, oh, yeah, I had it like calculating all this stuff for me. I'm like, oh, it really doesn't have actually an understanding of math. And like, if you didn't check the math, you could get into real trouble in doing that. <laughs> so I, I think that's one of the biggest challenges people have even on like their day-to-day -day basis, right? Is knowing like, 
what are the things that it can do, what it can't do. You know, if you ask it stuff, most of its information, its core training data set for ChatGPT only goes up to 2021, right? It, it has some other ways of adding in some other context mm -hmm. about some things, but like that itself could be a huge deal for some use cases. And they've got a small disclosure now in like the, the left-hand corner for it. But, you know, our point of view and is always that, you know, you need to be doing a lot more thoughtfulness about what tasks it can and can't do. And I worry that a lot of people, they don't understand it well enough in those limitations um, and that itself can bring some risks. Yeah, it's it's an interesting space. It's like handing you know somebody the keys to like a Lamborghini and and not knowing exactly you know it's capable of a lot of things, but you know half of half of the bells and whistles you don't even know about. So it's still it's so early on just to kind of understand like some of the the hacks, some of the tips, how to best use the tools. Um, so it'll be interesting. But I I think with that you know with 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 where it's at right now, I, I I'm curious to know. Um, you know, say for like data science boot camps and things of that nature, right? Are those already being crafted, or, you know, in terms of like really emphasis around AI? And have you all seen any of that or, or, or just generally in, in, in pure academia at large, um, are you seeing these programs being built around career paths within AI? And what, what does that look like? I know there's a lot of focus on training programs to learn how to use them. I haven't necessarily seen that. Um, and like academia itself, there's still very much desire to teach how these systems work under the hood, partly because mm -hmm. there's now so much focus on how to mitigate the risks. And you really only do that once you do understand the underlying levels. And like, you know, these models aren't yet explainable. And yet the necessity potentially legally for them to be explainable for certain use cases is so high. So I do suspect that'll be one of like the biggest areas of focus um, on that research side of things. Now, I think one of the, the challenges in one area as well, why sometimes I recommend like explore a multidisciplinary approach is that there's fewer and fewer orgs who are working out at the kind of cutting edge of things. And that's partly because these models are so large, you need so much data, so much compute, that there is kind of a concentration, right? If you want to work on a truly large language model, you need a billion dollars or at least a hundred million dollars in funding to be able to really support that kind of stuff. And that's only going to be accessible to a smaller and smaller number of organizations. You know, I actually knew some professors in grad school who they used to be some of the world leaders in machine translation, but they no longer have access to actually the, the algorithms and the data and the compute to do that still cutting edge work without actually then just associating with a lab um, working in big tech. So I think that itself can pose challenges to the accessibility for like those specialists in academia versus in big tech. Mm. Is that because yeah, I, I'm sorry? <laughs> is that because the what was cutting edge now just the new cutting edge just requires so much more compute and the access to it, or is it more nefarious? Is I guess is it more that big tech is actually gobbling it up and preventing it from being done at academia, or you'd rather not say? <laughs> I I don't think they're deliberate in gobbling it up. Like they're not trying to be, I'll say, predatory in that sense, but they are the only ones who can literally have like. Oh, we can spend a hundred million dollars to train GPT five. Right, right. No mm -hmm. university can throw that kind of resources at that. Right. Sorry, Maggie. I think you were going to yeah. say something, Mike. Rudely interrupting. Uh, never, yes, exactly. <laughs> no, um, <laughs> I was just going to add that uh, that is absolutely true, and I do think that is a problem um, for the field. Having thought a lot around um, sort of the AI safety space. 
there is a lot. Well, first of all, I guess the point one is that it it is harder to do cutting edge work um, because of the uh, resource constraints uh, that Andrew brought up. I think that's starting to be um, remedied a little bit through like the sort of open source development um, and ecosystem. Um, so you're not going to be able to, or it's, it's going to, <laughs> at least for a long time, cost a huge amount of money to do foundation model development. But um, I've seen so many cool things around like um, um, replicating perform the performance of these cute large models in a smaller model um, on, you know, $100 worth of har hardware and things like that. So I think um, it's, we're starting to move in, in a direction where it's, slightly more accessible, but not for the, not if you want to do the, the sort of cutting edge research. Um, and so like, it, it's very going to be very accessible for like building applications and things like that, uh, but not necessarily um, the type of work that, um, that you'd like uh, um, sort of professors to be working on with respect to um, some of the safety risks and things like that. Um, the other thing that I was going to mention is that I think for um, these big companies, it becomes sort of a, there, there is kind of a situation where, where uh, they're all racing for different resources and that does, yeah, um, drive up the cost of development for other folks. Um, and I know that some leaders in the space have um, proposed things like licensing uh, for the, if you want to have a model that's, you know, at GPT-4 level or higher, like um, having some, uh, you would need to get approval uh, or a license for that, um, which <laughs> is, I mean, I guess a good idea from a safety perspective, um, because you just have fewer people, <laughs> um, at least legally developing them. But I, I, even, even as a person who works in AI safety, I, I, uh, very much have like a, a reticence towards like any type of limitation around like who is allowed to, uh, develop them. And so, um, that I, I was just going to uh, sort of <laughs> um, also reference that proposal because I think it is interesting to see and um, Andrew, your trustable I know is is super involved with this, but uh, or in thinking around this, but like it, it will be very interesting to see I think how the AI governance uh, develops over the next few years. Yeah, there's really good questions on like the liability, right? Who owns that? Uh, a big thing that you know we focus on is it's really important to have models like the ones you guys are building on inflection, you know, disclose what the risks are for something. But then you can't, there's no way you guys can really understand all the ways that can be used, right? And that itself presents challenge. So even if you license out actually that, yeah, you're allowed to build these models, it's just, there still has to be a lot of responsibility on the groups who are actually deploying it to make sure that they're doing an ethical decision like, hey, are the benefits outweighing the risks? Right. I can look at the risks declared by my model and then I still need to decide whether those risks are appropriate or not for my use case and how that kind of maps out. I do think one of to tie it back to just what we were talking about just a second ago as well, you know, academia, they love open source stuff because then they can get access to actually do things at the edge of this model. But the danger there is actually um, all of the I think the worst uses of AI that we're worried about, they're not actually going to come from like open AI system that has a trust and safety team with a $10 million a year budget looking at stuff, it's going to come from the open source systems. If you want to run a misinformation campaign, do some illegal shit with AI, you're going to use the open source models. And then the problem is like, who's responsible for that? You know, what are the conditions there? And so 
there's been a couple of policy papers that came out earlier this week recommending that large frontier models actually not be open sourced at all. And the governments forbid that, which actually could, again, impact the ability for academia to be able to do some of their own frontier research on that. And there's a good kind of trade off there. I mean, I think it's as you guys were talking, I was sort of thinking about how it's so in the past, these types of big, expensive types of endeavors and new frontiers, space, nuclear technology, whatever, all started in the government. The government was the only ones who could possibly have the budgets to do this. There wasn't an immediate commercial application for X, Y, Z. With AI, there's an immediate commercial use and that's what's driving business to sort of be at the forefront of it and therefore i think government is playing catch up as opposed to in the past on some of these like right like what stops somebody from building a nuclear bomb in the past like we we figured it out the government funded all that they put in all these regulations to make it really really difficult for someone to do this but for on ai that's just not the case the the forefront is commercial application so i think it's an interesting as you guys were talking sort of some things clicked there that uh, hadn't really thought about in the past i think it's a good segue too into andrew in our initial disco call you were we were kind of talking a little bit about you know the the doomers out there the utopias and then you had a, a third one the ai pragmatists do you want to kind of expand on that uh just kind of uh, explain a little bit more of what you mean by that yeah so you know like any media thing media loves really you know uh eye-catchy headlines like AI is going to create, you know, solve all of our problems. And you can read blogs from famous VCs about how AI is the solution to all of our problems. You can also read, you know, we talked, we began this podcast talking about Skynet, right? AI is going to kill us <laughs> all kinds of things. Those are great for headlines. But the danger is that that kind of distracts from actually trying to solve some of the real problems out there, right? You don't need to have military AI to still have AI harms. One of the first instances that almost set off this entire industry now of AI safety research was around use of AI to recommend prison sentences. ProPublica did a great expose about like, hey, this is biased towards a certain group. Underlying that actually was a discussion about how you measure fairness in an algorithm, and arguably an ethical debate about what fairness was used to optimize things, right? AIs are trained to maximize some value. If that value is arguably has an ethical aspect to it, that needs to be discussed. You know, the truth is that we're never going to be able to pause all of AI, nor should we really assume that AI can really solve all of our problems because there's a lot of things that, frankly, are beyond its realm. And so the question is really, let's assume AI is going to be everywhere pretty quickly. You know, how do you actually set up the right conditions to do that responsibly? You know, we can't really prevent it. And so what are the policies that, should, that we should adopt instead? One example of that, and, you know, this may sound a little bit cynical, is it's always going to be cheaper and faster to generate content with AI. And so trying to say we're going to watermark everything, it's going to be really difficult. And also, again, with any open source system, any watermarking things can be evaded. And so instead, I also say, like, let's look at what is, quote, certified human content look like. You know, it's like the equivalent of an organic label on something. Let's define the criteria for that and actually get that set up. Because there's going to be a lot of interest and demand to say, like, yeah, I, I will only buy journalism that's certified human content right? Or like certain unions will want to enforce a certain level of that kind of stuff. Um, you know, that's just facing the reality that probably the, the majority of content that we'll see coming out within five years is maybe even kind of conservative is, uh, will be AI generated. Yeah, I think it's also so important to 
right, think through kind of the context in which all of this content is appearing and um, what we really need to do as <laughs> kind of a society um, in order to respond. Um, I guess that that might be your definition of pragmatism. Um, but it, it reminds me, I was recently um, at an event uh, organized by the uh, GIFCT Global Internet Forum on Counterterrorism and talking about a lot of this stuff, generative AI, and how um, we've already started to see sort of deep fakes from, or of political figures and things like that being used for various um, purposes. And when it comes to something like watermarking, I think it that to me strikes me as like um, an example of a technocratic solution where, right, like <laughs> even if you're saying like, okay, setting we're setting aside open source models, like all of the big AI generation uh, models have agreed that they're going to all watermark their content. But then ultimately, like how many people who are scrolling through X or, or other, like other social media platforms are going to be like, oh, I wonder if like this clip of President Biden is is real. Like, let me go just check it against all these different watermarking systems. No one's going to do that. Or, you know, one percent of people less than that are going to do that. And so I, I, I do think like what I'm most interested in is how it is exactly what Andrew's getting at, like how we can set ourselves up for this um, in the way that in a way that is um, kind of the most um, productive as possible and the most um, uh, sort of realistic around what is al- what has already happened <laughs> and not trying to stuff the genie back into the bottle, so to speak. One of my favorite, um, I'll say like pragmatic AI ideas I heard out there was instead of schools and teachers trying to prevent people from using, you know, GPT to generate their stuff, which is you know, that's a, that's a losing battle. It's going to be impossible to ever like truly restrict it. They said, all right, you have to turn in one copy that is generated by GPT and you have to disclose what your prompt was and all the stuff you did. And you also have to hand in the, the handwritten version as well. You know, that shouldn't necessarily reflect that. I thought that was like really pragmatic because actually they'll end up with a, a whole corpus of like 30 plus essays written by GPT to then compare against all the ones that weren't. And it's kind of like, you know, use this as a tool, but still have to like show that original and creative side of things. Those are the kinds of solutions I think we just really need to be talking about more instead of just like banning this, because I think that'll be just a waste of time and effort. Yeah. The one that I saw that was also a classroom was the idea of like, we're just going to change what's homework and what's classwork. So rather than going home and writing this paper on your time, we're going to use the class, like read the book at home. If you want to use chat GPT to whatever, to come up with ideas or whatever, but like we're going to actually use class time to, to, to write the paper, which I thought was an interesting way of doing it to make sure that people get the concepts and stuff like that. Yeah. I think it's all a pretty fascinating conversation at large. I mean, it, it, yeah, everybody's gone through that that point. Uh, probably at one point in the last six months or years, is my job is my job in jeopardy? Or is is my role going to be one that's replaced? And you know, I think one of the biggest things that we've always kind of preached is just like it it should be a part of everybody's job. Just a matter of like how do you use it as a tool in your tool belt to become more efficient or what have you. But um, yeah, it's just it, it's still so early too. I'm very excited to see how everything's how things play out over the years. But um, this is a great kind of starting point to keep the conversation moving. I love the pragmatic out, outlook on this too. I think it's a it's a really fascinating uh, addition, Andrew. But um, why don't we? Um, Put a bow on it and transition over to our final segment uh, of the show. So 
this is going to be the five second scramble where I'm just going to ask each of you a quick series of questions. Uh, try to give me your, your best response within five seconds. Um, some business, some personal. I'll start with you, Andrew, and then I'll, I'll jump over to you, Maggie. So, um, Andrew, you ready? Yeah, let's do it. All right. Uh, explain trustable to me as if I was a five-year-old. We help you do all the legal paperwork for AI. How would you describe the culture at Trustable? I mean, we're an early stage company, so it feels like a family of friend, a family of friends working together. I don't know if that makes sense, but <laughs> I got it. What uh, what kind of technologists would you say thrive at, at Trustable? One who is comfortable kind of learning stuff on their own. There's a lot of unknowns um, for what we're doing on the regulatory and AI front. Very cool. And what, what would you say uh, are some exciting things that folks can gear up for uh, heading into 2024? Yeah, I mean, be ready. The, the number of new applications of AI we're going to see is going to be explosive, I think. Nice. If you could have any superpower, what would it be and why? Ooh. I'd have the ability to um, go back in time and re even just to reobserve things that happened in the past. Nice. All right. Kiss, Mary, kill, bagel, croissant, English muffin. All right. Kill English muffin, uh, <laughs> kiss a bagel, Mary croissant. <laughs> um, what's something that you like to do, but you're not very good at? Ooh. Um, probably bike rides. I, I love to go on some trails, but I'm like, I'm not particularly fast or athletic about it. So let's keep, keep that helmet on. Yeah. Sure. <laughs> I crash a lot. What's, <laughs> what's a, a charity or corporate philanthropy that's near and dear to you? Um, my wife and I have volunteered at a dog shelter, um, here in DC. Cool. Very nice. What's something that you're very afraid of? Ooh, something I'm very afraid of. Uh, dairy. Definitely afraid of dairy. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Appreciate the honesty. Yeah. Um, who is the greatest superhero of all time? Greatest superhero of all time. Uh, I've got a soft spot for Iron Man. Nice. That's the first time we've heard Iron Man on the show. That's good. I like that. Oh, interesting. All right, that's a wrap. Uh, Andrew, Maggie, are you are you ready? I think so. All right, perfect. Uh, what is your favorite part about the culture at Inflection? Uh, I think my favorite part is that um, because this area is so new, like there's a lot of just openness to experimentation and um, trying different things out. Very cool. What kind of technologist thrives at Inflection? Uh, quite a range, um, but definitely people who are open to um, iterating fast, but also kind of uh, robust <laughs> evaluators um, and, and uh, like to borrow a term from uh, cybersecurity, really like pen testing and, and kind of relentless in, in terms of um, trying to find all the chinks in the armor. Nice red, red team stuff. Mm -hmm. um, what, uh, what can our listeners be excited about with inflection going into 2024? Oh, uh, I think we'll have a lot of uh, improvements on the model side coming out. Um, so, yeah, I, I don't I can't say too much about it, but definitely stay tuned. Um, and uh, the product uh, pie um, will be 
and we'll be we'll be continuing to iterate on our on our product. Cool. Excited for that. Uh, how would you describe your morning routine in five seconds? Um, I usually work out uh, Peloton and um, have like some kind of breakfast, like toast, simple uh, toast, peanut butter, anything like that. Cool. What do you love most about living in Austin? Oh, I love Austin. My family's from Central Texas. Um, tailgating at UT, lots of sand volleyball. Fun town. <laughs> cool. I'm going to flip it from what I asked Andrew. Um, what's something that you're good at, but you hate doing? Oh, um, hmm, that is interesting. <laughs> um, <laughs> let's see. I'm always, I'm, I'm very good at, there are certain like household chores that I have like, um, kind of a, a systematic approach to, but I don't like enjoy doing. So, <laughs> um, like, I don't know, um, like big loads of laundry, uh, I guess. <laughs> freaking hate laundry. Yeah. Um, what, well, if you could live in a fictional world from a book or a movie, which one would you choose? Hmm. Wow. Um, I would love to live in, um, like the kind of Gabriel Garcia Marquez, like magical realism, um, <laughs> space. So like kind of a, a South America tropical area, but like with magic. <laughs> Sounds awesome. What's the worst fashion trend that you've ever followed? Oh gosh. Um, Capri pants. <laughs> <laughs> Well played. Um, what was your dream job as a kid? I was actually just talking about this with someone. I really wanted to be a farmer uh, for a long time as a kid, kid, because um, my grandpa was a farmer um, and I thought like pigs and sheep and all that was really cute or were really cute. So That's such a wholesome answer. <laughs> um, and we'll end with your favorite Disney character. Um, probably Mulan. Uh, I feel like she was early to the like strong female lead uh, game and um, yeah, is just a badass. Yeah, just a badass and great soundtrack too. Great soundtrack also. All right, that is a wrap. Thank you all both for participating and uh, joining us uh, on the podcast. You've been fantastic guests. Uh, we're excited to keep tracking the innovative work that you all will be doing with your companies and building in the AI space. So appreciate you all spending time with us uh, on the pod. Thanks for having us. Thank you.